Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. November is a really interesting time for us because my, my ministry and, and, and work life hasn't slowed down enough for me to think about Christmas. But my husband, every November, sits down with all his colleagues and works out their on-call roster for the next year, which means the pressure is on because anything I don't get in his diary blocked out is 99% sure to be inconvenient for us for the entire 2020. So I can't even think about Christmas yet, but I already have to plan my next year, all right? There's a lot of, a lot of pressure on that. And so what's really interesting is trying to take that step to plan. And I've been thinking about next year. What will I do? What will I do? My daughter starts school. Five days a week, I can now function like a human being again. <laughs> it is exciting, I tell you. It's exciting. So I'm like, well, what, what am I going to do? Well, see, this year, I haven't managed the gym. You can probably tell. Hold that to yourselves. But I haven't managed the gym this year. Last year, I went diligently. And I thought, well, maybe 2020 I could start thinking about it again because the reason I joined the gym in the first place, you know, people join for different reasons. Some want to, you know, get abs and look good. Others just think they look good in Lycra and think that... I did join Instagram this week, so maybe I'll take a little bit of that. Jess messaged me. She's like, you are immediately cooler. I'm like, is that, is that really what it took? But, so I thought, maybe, maybe I should join the gym again. But see, the reason I joined the gym in the first place wasn't to get fit, because I, I recognised the limits of my capacity. It wasn't even because I think I look good in Lycra or want to. It's because I needed to break even. Yeah. You see, I have a little bit of a problem. It's called chocolate. <laughs> I see it, I eat it. And so I figured if I hit the gym two to three times a week, I'm going to break even. This was my theory and philosophy. I quite honestly failed. <laughs> it turns out that my other side of my brain went, you're going to the gym, you can eat more chocolate. <laughs> and what I found was that this behaviour that I put in my life, thinking that it was to break even and hoping to see some benefits for my health and all this sort of thing, had some unexpected behaviours and benefits out of it, like I was now paying for the gym and extra physio appointments for all the damage I did to myself at the gym. So I haven't quite worked out whether I'm going back to the gym. You can talk to me about that afterwards. But it got me thinking about how when we position ourselves in certain environments or behaviours or membership or spaces, we expect to see a bit of a difference in our behaviour, don't we? You know, if I go to the gym, I expect to not get puffed running up the stairs. Didn't work, but I expected it. All right, I was not very good at the gym. <laughs> but we expect it. So we enter into these spaces and places in our lives, and we expect that they will make some sort of difference to the way that we behave and we live. And often I think this is what the world thinks about when it asks the question about faith. Does faith actually make a difference yeah. in people's lives? Yeah. Like, do people sign up for this Jesus thing? Does it actually make a relevant difference in their life? There was some study done in the United States about a decade ago now. And they took a group of people who were atheists, said they didn't have any faith. And a group of people who said that they were Christians, not just kind of the census tick box, but said that their faith meant something to them and was relevant to their life. 
And they asked him a whole bunch of questions. In the last 30 days, have you? Have you recycled? Have you flipped somebody off in traffic? Have you looked at a pornographic website? Have you consulted a medium? Have you gossiped about somebody behind their back? Have you taken something from work? Have you, have you, have you? And when the researchers took this research and they looked at the results, they took out the things like, have you prayed and have you read your Bible? And they just looked at the behavioural attributes of what people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis and asked the question whether people's faith was actually making a difference in their behaviour. You know what they found? There was no statistical difference. None. In fact, the only place where there was a slight statistical difference was that Christians were less likely to swear in public because <laughs> that's the sum total of our faith, right? We watch what we say, except for me at lunch when I cut myself on Micah's sushi. I already failed that one today. Look, <laughs> there goes my 30 days. Let's start again. No statistical difference. And so I asked myself the question, as a person who claims to know Jesus, what difference does that claim actually make in my life? Because as I look at the culture around me, and I look at the expectations of that culture on my life and on my time and on my priorities and on my values and on my hopes and dreams and identity, and I look at the culture's expectation and the narrative that it wants to write over my life, I have to ask the question, God, is there a different way? Because as I look at our culture, and it sells this idea of human flourishing as abandoning all authority and, and moral restrictions and just embracing freedom in whatever form looks happy to you and makes you feel fulfilled and makes you look significant and makes you have more pleasure and more power and more purpose, whatever that is, this idea of human flourishing that our culture sells. I also see how many cracks are starting to show in that story. I see the anxiety at record levels, like we don't know what to do with it because we have no place of peace. I hear statistics like this is the first generation, our young adults now, that are growing up without the expectation that life will improve in their lifetime. A generation without hope being sold a lie that we're moving towards some sort of human flourishing as we become more free and more and more and more. And I ask myself the question, God, is there a different way, a different path, a different narrative that I can actually walk and live in every single day? And I think this is what the disciple John was looking at. You see, 1 John is a letter in the New Testament. It was more like a sermon. I kind of imagine he wrote it down and said, give it to the most charismatic person to read, you know? Um, and it's this sermon that's found right towards the end of the New Testament, book of 1 John. And in it, he's speaking into this church in Ephesus who are at a crisis. They've got the culture around them which doesn't look too dissimilar to ours, who is constantly pursuing pleasure at its heights, and then he's got this church which is in crisis because many of the people there have left and are starting to warp culture and bad theology together into some sort of denial of who Jesus is. And he's speaking to the remaining Christians, trying to encourage them about the foundation that their faith is built on. 
And what's really interesting is that often when we quote from this book, we're at a wedding, and we get to that beautiful part of God is love. But just for fun, this week I thought I'd read around that. I know. And I started earlier in chapter 4. And I was compelled by the way that John was speaking to the church in Ephesus because he was explaining to them that in this cultural moment that they were in, not unlike ours, you need to understand that it's actually time to test and ask questions of our culture. It's time to test and ask questions of the things that people are saying to see whether they actually line up with the truth about how God is, who God is before they start applying it to their life and their identity and their walk. And so he lies this out for them. And I, I want to start in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. And he says, But you belong to God, dear children. You have already won the victory over these people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Those people belong to the world, so they speak from the world's viewpoint. And the world listens to them. But we belong to God and those who, who know God listen to us. If they do not belong to God, they do not listen to us. This is how we know if somebody has a spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. He's saying, ask the question. Don't just take everything you hear on face value. Ask the question, does this line up with the truth and the plumb line of who God is? Because as we look at the way that we shape our walk and we look at the way that we live out our lives and the behaviours that we take on, we need to be asking the question, does this line up with God's narrative and story about who I am and what I am called to do and be? Or is this the world's culture speaking into me, trying to, to speak into who I am? And he says, you've got to ask the question. You've got to ask the question. But then he twists it completely on its head. And he gets to that beautiful part of 1 John 4 that we all know and love. We all know and love. And he says this, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. And anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. Gee, we love that. Even non-Christians love that. God is love. I mean, if you're going to go to a rally these days, that's what you put on your sign, isn't it? God is love. And yet we filled this word here for love with everything that we think. God is a nice, soft feeling. God is supportive of all my decisions. Yeah? God approves of everything I do, say, and think. And we fill this word love with all of the things that we hope it means for our sakes. And we miss, we miss the profound reality of what it actually does. You see, this word is the Greek word agape or agape. I really couldn't decide which way to say it. And this word agape is not a feeling it is not a soft, comfortable emotion. It is not attraction or affection. It is the determined will of God towards you. It is a choice. 
It is a choice to prefer you over himself. This word agape is about sacrifice. It is about laying down your life. It is about giving all of who you are. It is about generosity and preference and fighting for the other with zero expectation that the other will reach back and appreciate it. It is the selfless, unselfish, uninhibited act of God towards you, not because he felt like it, but because he determined in his will to love you no matter what it cost him. And the greatest example of that love is Jesus Christ. John goes on and he says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, the old... The thing about this word love is that so often in our culture we use it to be permissible and to make everything all right and everybody happy and every... That's not what this word means. God is love doesn't mean God loves everything you do. God is love doesn't mean every love is God. God is love. is held in tension and in quite frankly, empowered by the fact that God is truth. You know, the start of this book in 1 John, he reveals that God is light. The God who reveals the darkness, expels the darkness, and reveals the brokenness. And then God is love who heals and redeems the broken. God is love doesn't mean that we sit in a space where everything is okay because we know that it's not. God is love means that God meets us in the space where everything is not okay and he redeems us from that space. The greatest example of agape love is the person of Jesus Christ choosing in himself to stay on that cross for your sins and mine. Not because we earned it or deserve it, could ever repay it or maybe would even appreciate it one day, but purely because out of who he is, out of his nature, he could do nothing but express his wholehearted agape love towards you and me by laying down his own life. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is what we sing about and worship about and celebrate and share with our friends and family, that we worship a God who is love. Doesn't mean that we worship a God who thinks everything and everyone is okay. We worship a God who knows that everything and everyone is not okay and loves us anyway. That is the good news that we celebrate. That is what the heart of agape means. It's this beautiful, beautiful, rich, deep word. Rich, rich, rich word. But he goes on, and this is where it gets challenging for me. Because quite frankly, I like that God loved me that much. But then, it, he asked something of me. Here we go, strap in. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to agape others. 
Sorry, I should read that with joy. We surely ought to love others. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. There is something about this word, because I kind of go, look, God, this word means, talks about you know, your, your extreme divine sacrifice for all of humanity. Surely this is not a word that I could ever love in that way. And God says, you not only need to love in that way, you need to love other people in that way, even when they're not lovely or lovable, or nice. You need to love your neighbours in that way. It's not just love of God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. It is loving our neighbour. It is washing our neighbour's feet. Oh. (laughs) And it gets challenging. It gets challenging. Because I don't know about you, but I don't always feel like loving others. And then if you read the Gospels, it gets worse. (laughs) Because then Jesus says things like, I want you to love, I want you to agape your enemies. It's like, God, I can't even work out how to love the people I like. (laughs) You want me to love my enemies? Did I hear that right? Should we look into the Greek? Because maybe it doesn't mean that. You want me to love my enemies? The people who annoy me and frustrate me who make my life difficult, who intentionally or unintentionally kind of cause trouble and stir it. You want me to love them too with this self-sacrificing love, whether it's reciprocated or not. You want that of me? You want that of us? Oh, how do I even start that, God? How do we even do that? And we keep reading and it will give us a clue. In verse 16, it says, God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. You know the problem with most Christians is that we think we love out of our own strength. We look at that list of behaviours that we're supposed to do. We've got to love people. We've got to be generous. We've got to be kind. We're not supposed to swear in public. We're not supposed to... And we, we rack up this list of what a good Christian's supposed to look like. And then we add on it, love others and love your enemies. And we look at this list and we think, gee, that's, that's hard work, God. But okay, I'll, I'll get my list and I'll, I'll try with all my strength and with all my might and with all my... God said, no, no, love me with all your strength. Love me with all your might. And out of that, you will learn to love your neighbour. Dwell in him. Live in him. And out of that place, his love will be brought to full expression. His love grows more perfect when we sit in the place of dwelling in him. I don't know about you, that's good news to me. Because in my own strength, let me tell you, I'm not an agape person by nature, but God is. But the God I worship is. The God who sacrificed in Jesus Christ that I love and adore and have put my trust in. He is the one who is the by very nature agape. And as I dwell in him who is love, his love starts to transform this. It starts to work on our hearts. 
suddenly we look a lot less like we used to and start to look a lot more like Jesus. We have the capacity to love others, to prefer them, to put aside our preferences, to put aside our egos and our pride, to to live self-sacrificing loves out of that place of dwelling. You know, I love we, we prayed here before tonight and we prayed for the green team. You've got a whole bunch basically living agape. They didn't need to be here because they're in the theory portion. You're all in the uh, no, practical portion. You're all in the theory portion here. So they're living agape now. They are putting aside their own preferences for sleep and not to be vomited on. And they are living agape. They are showing God's love to others, even though they might not appreciate it or remember them or understand what's going on. They're not giving them a sermon along with it to make sure they get all of the... They're just loving them and demonstrating the love of God that has been poured into their life. They are now pouring it out into others. That is agape at work. That is agape at work. But as we prayed here tonight, we didn't pray that they would have strength in their own strength to do that. We prayed that they would find rest in the presence of God, that they would dwell richly in who God is so that out of that place, they could serve and love others. If you want to get your head around this idea of agape, if you want to get your head around what it means to love out of a place of God, then you need to understand it comes from a place of dwelling in the rhythms of God. And as we look at our life, and the narrative that is sung over our life, the the foundation and the mat that's parved out to us by culture, it does not look like agape. It does not look like agape. It looks like anything but. Abandon all sacrifice, abandon all commitment, abandon all surrender, be your own person, chase after the things that make you happy. And yet God invites us to dwell in a different path, a different story, with which to live our lives. And out of that richness, out of that rhythm of who God is, we get to discover this rich, beautiful place where that flourishing that the world is looking for is actually found in God as we dwell in him, as we worship him. Do you know what it is to dwell in worship? I often can't do it even in this space. Like I I need to worship with my brothers and sisters, but sometimes I just need to worship in my dining room when nobody's home because my kids complain about my singing. You know? And so it's not, it's this gathering in worship and community with which we dwell with God, but it's allowing that dwelling to not just be a moment in our week, but a lifelong, week-long pattern where we dwell in the rhythm of who God is, where we dwell in the word of God as God is revealing himself to us, where we dwell in community, where we dwell in small groups, where we dwell in rich conversations of faith and hope and love and support that is in those space, in that rhythm of dwelling in who God is, in agape God. It's in those places that we are transformed, not to measure up to a list, but to set our hearts on God, who is love for me, and whom I love others because of. 
It is this rich, rich and beautiful place. So how do you need to dwell deeper? What would it look like for you to dwell? Because we live in a very busy world that is not very good at dwelling. It's not good at stopping. I mean, you can cut meme videos anytime you want. There is distraction at your fingertips every moment of every day. And it's hilarious. And I look forward to all of it on Instagram. But it's not good at dwelling. It's not good at stopping and being. I'm dreadful at this. I'm not preaching to you as somebody who has worked this out. I'm preaching to you as somebody who has heard this call of God to stop and dwell some more. To sit in the presence of God. To ensure that I'm part of dwelling in community. And that out of that, as my heart is changed, I will discover what it is to love God with everything I have and to love others as I love myself. So how do you need to dwell? For some of you sitting here tonight, the question is not how do you need to dwell more in God, but how do you need to enter into that dwelling place? You've been wondering about faith and you might have come tonight with some questions. Questions that look a lot like, does this Jesus thing actually make a difference? And I want to tell you that it does. It does. That there is a richness that's found in living your life, dwelling in the presence and the love of God that the world cannot offer. That peace that you have been searching for because you are struggling with such restlessness in your life, it is found in the dwelling place. It is found in encountering the agape saving love of Jesus Christ. That burden that you've been carrying, dragging around from relationship to relationship. It's not going to get solved by the next one. But it can. It can be lifted. It can be lifted by a God who loves you. That hunger for purpose and direction and a path for your life. It's not going to be solved by taking on every aspect that the world tells you to fight and strive for. It gets solved, it gets reassured. You find purpose and meaning in the place of dwelling and walking with God. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We'd love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.